Welcome to the Sleep Science Pod, the podcast that reveals the science behind one of the most fundamental, yet most mysterious of human behaviours, sleep. I'm Dr. Caroline Horton. I'm an academic psychologist and the director of Dreams Lab. I also really love sleep, so personally, as well as professionally, I know how important it is for our mental and physical health. Throughout this series, I'll be talking to guests about their common sleep complaints and offering evidence-based tips for getting that all-important shut-eye. Together, we'll evaluate the evidence that sleep improves all aspects of health and well-being, and whether it really is that ultimate panacea. This programme explores and demystifies common tips for improving sleep. Do we really have to avoid caffeine? Can I have a nightcap instead? And surely, if I put my phone on night mode, that blue light can't really affect me, can it? We'll consider the answers to these questions and more in this week's episode. I've recently coordinated a research project that I called Sleep Well to reflect not only how we might be able to sleep better, but also that in doing so, it might make us actually feel psychologically well and healthy. This project really was one of exploring and understanding sleep hygiene, a term that you may well have heard of. But as I found out when I started asking people, they didn't know exactly what it meant. So the first stage of this project was to talk to people, university students in this instance, and just try to find out what they understood by the term sleep hygiene. When they started talking, it was evident that they had picked up on lots of common tips on how to sleep better, like NHS advice around improving a sleep routine, avoiding caffeine and alcohol, and maybe steering clear of that phone or tablet screen before going to bed. But quite a lot of people didn't know that these tips were actually called sleep hygiene. Similarly, those tips, although they were recognised through discussion, weren't absolutely common knowledge, with people picking and choosing which bits might be relevant for them. This was quite interesting. As a sleep researcher, we spend a lot of time trying to ensure that sleep hygiene messages are communicated well. But unless they're really consistent, there might be a bit of confusion about them. When I asked these university students how they felt about their own sleep hygiene, there were mixed responses. Generally, they said they didn't drink alcohol and that caffeine just didn't affect them. So what would it matter if they had a cup of tea when they woke up in the middle of the night? This I found quite interesting. They were clearly bringing with them some values about their own experiences, deciding which parts of the tips they wanted to accept and which parts they'd rather ignore. Indeed, caffeine doesn't affect all of us in the same way, but it's amazing how many people I've talked to over the years who haven't even tried giving it up before deciding that it doesn't affect their sleep. I love a cup of tea too, but I do stop enjoying them after midday just to be on the safe side. It was interesting talking to these students. They're in a pretty specific and unique set of circumstances, before lockdown changed all of our routines at least. They lived together in groups, sharing aspects of their routine in terms of going to lectures and studying together, even though individual timetables might be quite varied. And also being really tempted by nightlife. Nightlife, a whole culture built for people not sleeping that may be on hold at the moment, but it's an amazing concept when you think about it. Having said that, I ensured I spoke to mature students and international students 
who were experiencing not necessarily your typical university student experience. When I asked about their phone use, for example, a number of respondents said that they just felt more comfortable with their phone near them than out of the room to help them sleep. International students said that this was their communication line back to a place of safety in their home. Also, a number of their relatives were in very different time zones, so the only way they could communicate with their family was really by sacrificing some sleep and staying up late in some cases. This really opened my eyes to the fact that phone use is, for many people, a source of comfort. And if there are sleep hygiene tips to stay away from the phone, some people were just not listening to it. I don't know how this affects you. You may have heard that the blue light that's emitted from phone screens can disturb your sleep. There's lots of evidence to support this idea. It seems that the blue light in particular is interpreted by the brain to indicate that it's daytime, so time to stay awake. Specifically, it inhibits melatonin production. Melatonin is a hormone that tells our body that it's nighttime and helps us to feel sleepy. When that production is disrupted, we don't feel sleepy, so we carry on scrolling through Instagram or the news or whatever else is on the screen at the time. A colleague from the Lincoln Centre for Sleep Research, Dr. Michael Moreku, along with researchers from Imperial College London, Birkbeck and the Swiss Tropical and Public Health Institute, analysed the use of screens before sleep in the dark compared to the lights being on. You might be surprised by this like I was, but screen use alone meant that the preteen participants in the study were 31% more likely to get less sleep, so their sleep was disrupted, than those who didn't use a screen. But here's the headline, that sleep disruption was 147% more likely when the screens were used in the dark compared to the light. Perhaps the contrast of the bright light from the screen against a dark backdrop exacerbates the effects of devices interrupting our sleep. So should we have the light on? Well, no. If we're getting a good dose of that white light before bed, no matter in what circumstances, it follows that it's going to be hard to switch off. What we don't know quite so much about is the psychological mechanism of switching off. It's something I'm really interested in. So if we're reading something on our phone or tablet or watching a video on our screen before bed, that might not just be keeping us awake through the blue light. It might also be awakening our minds to a state of alertness. You can probably relate if you're reading something arousing or emotional. I mean, Reading or even watching or listening to the news can be quite distressing at times and doesn't exactly help you to relax. Another colleague from Lincoln, Dr. Patrick Bork, along with Jenny Bowler from the University of East Anglia, explored the relationship between device use and sleep quality and whether what we're doing on the device might be preventing us from switching off. Study participants sat in a dark room while using Facebook in the hour before bed some with an amber filter on to dampen the blue light emitted from the screens, and some without. As expected, sleep quality was affected and functioning the next day was also impaired. But there was an interaction between the effect of the amber filter and what people were doing on their phones. So, the effect of the amber film, which filters out that blue light, 
only seems to be visible when viewing non-arousing content. So in short, when people were using Facebook, that sufficiently stimulated them. It aroused them and kept them awake and therefore affected their sleep negatively, which in turn negatively affected their functioning the next day. We can speculate then that when the content of what we're looking at on our screens is even more emotionally arousing, that effect would be even greater. Phone or device use may be a massive influence on our ability to switch off and get ready for sleep. And if you think you're safer in the dark, well, the opposite seems to be true. So whilst a number of students I spoke to felt that being away from their phone would have been seriously discomforting in an attempt to sleep better, a number of adults in the UK disagreed when I trialled a sleep hygiene intervention with them. Out of the 89 people who provided feedback in that study, 42% indicated that they would principally focus on trying to limit their phone use before bed. They knew that that was likely something that they needed to work on personally. Others in the study instead chose to focus on either limiting caffeine or alcohol, exercising more in the day, relaxing before bed, which was also a popular choice actually, or preparing their sleep room better by limiting light and noise. But when I was talking to those university students, a number of people said that they didn't drink alcohol, and that may well be true in that sample. But for many adults, they, well, we do, it may help us feel like we're switching off, especially in the evenings before bed. And indeed, it can sometimes help us to feel relaxed. However, it can affect both deep sleep and REM. Furthermore, if you have quite a bit to drink, it might actively wake you up in the night, either by increasing the likelihood of just needing the toilet or making you feel like you've got used to drinking, which leads to the need to drink more, and then you get a dry mouth if you don't carry on. That's a state of alcohol withdrawal. None of these things are going to be great for going to sleep easily and then in turn staying asleep. So unfortunately, alcohol, particularly in large quantities, is a no-no if you have problems with your sleep. Another core and common piece of sleep advice is to sleep in a regular routine. As we've talked about in previous episodes, sleeping is a habit. It's not something that always comes naturally, particularly if we mess around with our routine. So the more that we can train the body and the brain to expect when to go to sleep, the easier it will be to do. The same is true of waking. If we've had enough sleep, we'll wake and we'll feel rested when we do it. If we feel tired after a good day involving physical exercise and different experiences, we'll feel ready for sleep. Now, if you're in lockdown right now, as I am, that can be difficult to get a range of experiences. How on earth are we going to tire ourselves out or ensure that we have various different experiences when we've, um, we've been doing the same things all day? Well, we've got to put a bit of extra effort in, I'm afraid, particularly right now. Ensure that we have those Zoom calls with our friends to try and have some different kinds of conversation and see different people. Put some effort in to try and eat different foods or to engage with different kinds of media. And I'm afraid that the exercise is still really important if it's going to physically tire us. These different tips were incorporated into the Sleep Well programme. 
The feedback from the student discussions helped me to learn not just about how people commonly interpret and understand sleep hygiene, but also that there needs to be a little bit of variability in how people approach it. Lots of psychological evidence shows us about the importance of autonomy, so letting people have some choice over their actions. That's quite tricky to balance when you're actively trying to change behaviour for the better, but it seemed like creating a bespoke programme where participants could select their own sleep hygiene strategies from a list was maybe a good way to go. So the second part of the Sleep Well programme was born. It involved inviting participants to engage with the programme to find out about sleep hygiene and then to implement some tips at home. At three time points, at baseline, before finding out about sleep hygiene or engaging with the programme, two weeks after starting it and two weeks later again, participants completed some self-report measures of sleep quantity, sleep quality and well-being. Let's remember, the reason for this activity and research project is that For so many of us, we really do need to improve our sleep. We need to sleep more and we need to sleep consistently. The effects of not doing so, as we've seen in previous episodes, can be really quite far-reaching. We can sometimes feel it after just a single night. And then we become slightly less able to detect sensitively the effects of long-term and prolonged sleep loss, which as we know can be really quite severe. I'm always a bit surprised when I talk to people that they're not willing to try to sleep more. They're very quick to say, oh, I can't sleep or I can't try that particular tip because I'm just too busy. Well, I can understand and experience firsthand that it's sometimes not always tempting to eat your five a day or exercise for your 90 minutes of vigorous exercise a week or whatever the current recommendation might be. However, the thought of going to bed early and curling up somewhere really comfortable is, to me at least, really quite appealing. So, surely, it should be an easy job for us to campaign to sleep better. And yet, we're still finding that there are challenges, even during lockdown, when those temptations of nightlife are literally close to us. So, the three-step sleep hygiene plan. The first bit of that involved asking people to pledge to try to sleep for eight hours a night and doing so, secondly, by working according to a regular routine. That would mean that they'd have to think about not just being in bed for eight hours, but by trying to sleep for eight hours. So if on average it takes you 30 minutes to get to sleep, you'd need to be in bed for at least eight and a half hours if you're going to be asleep for eight of those. The final third bit of the sleep well, a three-step plan, was to then give some individual choice around sleep hygiene. So there were a list of offerings and individuals could select one or more if they wanted from that list. The list included trying to exercise more in the day, trying to engage in some relaxation techniques before going to bed, switching off the phone, although understandably that was really quite popular, uh, avoiding caffeine and avoiding alcohol. As I mentioned before, in spite of those university students saying they couldn't possibly be without their phones, the participants in this study, by and large, opted to try and limit their screen use. So what did we find? At the time of recording, which is February 2021, early data indicate from around 104 people that this three-step plan is working. Self-reported sleep quality improved over the two weeks after starting the intervention, and again further, statistically significantly so, two weeks after that. 
And people are volunteering feedback that they are feeling better as a result with people commenting that they're having fewer headaches, feeling more rejuvenated and less stressed. Indeed, our well-being measures, specifically the Warwick Edinburgh Wellbeing Scale, indicated a significant improvement over the course of the study. So people really were feeling better, most likely because their sleep had improved. People were sleeping well. I feel really proud of that achievement, but like any habit, it takes time and effort to sustain sleeping well. One of the difficulties is maintaining these habits individually, so we need to take note of the sleep distractors around us in our own lives. These are things like the ability to be connected to the internet and our devices 24-7. We have information being thrown away all around us all of the time, but is it really absolutely important to you that you are connected all of that time? Or is it more healthy and more useful that for some of that period we switch off? We also need to be aware of the cultural issues around nightlife. From talking to my university students, this is something that really became quite evident. The whole culture of nightlife is characterised by bright and colourful lights, noise, activity, drinking and staying up. That's okay if at that time in your life your sleep pattern is suited. Teenagers naturally go to bed later and sleeping late, sleep in later, not because they're lazy in any way, but because their circadian rhythms, their natural brain and body rhythms, have shifted a little later. That's absolutely fine as long as that rhythm aligns with everything else in their lives. But in reality, not all parts of life shift later along with their natural cycles. You may have heard of campaigns to start school later, for instance, for teenagers, and we'll think about those in a later episode. But for most people enjoying nightlife, they still have to balance that with their day lives, and that's where the tension lies. So if people are being tempted by nightlife, how is it then when it's juxtaposed with early start lectures, school or work? that that's surely going to create a conflict and a squeezing of the opportunity for sleep. We need to reconcile this in a cultural manner somehow. For those of us who work shifts, this can create a real challenge with trying to maintain a regular routine. It's actually better to work consistently on nights for as long as possible than to keep changing between working on day shifts and night shifts. But again, This creates some tensions, especially if other members of your household are awake during the day. Regularity is key if we can possibly manage to incorporate. Sometimes our routines are affected by life changes, or because other people in the household have a different routine to us, or simply because they have problems with their own sleep. If you have children, you'll know what I'm talking about. Problems with children's routines are particularly common and can impact on the whole household. The Sleep Charity works across the UK by supporting children's sleep, both by working with individuals and also by campaigning more widely to highlight the importance of sleep. Last March, the Sleep Charity lobbied Parliament with the Sleep Manifesto as part of a campaign called the Wake Up Call for disturbed sleep to be recognised as a public health issue. They've also developed the Charter for Sleep Equality, which allows supporters to pledge to focus on recognising the importance of healthy sleep and improving it. The pandemic has shifted public health efforts elsewhere, of course, but we can still do our bit individually to support this endeavour. And information about these campaigns can be found on the Sleep Charity's website 
and a link can be found in this episode's description too. I spoke to Claire Early, a sleep practitioner at the Sleep Charity. Claire has first-hand experience of the effects of sleep deprivation when a child struggles to sleep severely. This led for her to an interest in sleep, and she now supports many families and individuals with their own sleep hygiene. So hi there, Claire. Hi. Would you mind uh, telling us about how, how you sleep um, and your own personal interests in sleep? Uh, my own personal interest in sleep goes back a long way with my son that wasn't sleeping very well when he was younger. Um, he was about eight years old when we finally got a good night's sleep and that was purely um, through speaking to Vicky who founded the charity and she went off and did her sleep training and was coming back and telling me all different bits that she was learning and I started putting them in place with my son um, and after a couple of weeks of really hard work and setting them routines and then boundaries um, he started sleeping through. I was quite amazed really and that changed quite a lot of things from my my experience, my life and personal life, health and well-being, mental health. A lot of it improved, both of us, all of us as a family. Can you tell us about the Sleep Charity? Um, the Sleep Charity was set up, like I said, um, by Vicky Dawson. She founded it in 2012, having been a sleep-deprived mum herself. Um, and she's decided to set up this this charity to help parents get a good night's sleep uh, with their children. So what kind of people do you work with? Are these people who already recognise that they might have some kind of problems with sleep? We work with children mainly um, at the moment um, from ages of one upwards to 19, um, 25 if they've got an EHC plan um, or educational need. Um, and we take self-referrals usually. Um, we do get referrals through paediatricians, doctors, community nurses, schools, um, quite a lot of different um, referrals from different sectors. Um, and we work either on a one-to-one -one basis with them wherever there is a funded service we're hoping to get a helpline set up so we can work more nationally on a one-to-one -one basis. So could you tell us what kind of, of work you do uh, in terms of individual sleep hygiene or sleep improvement techniques? Okay, when we run the clinics, usually it's an appointment with parent for um, 45 minutes. We ask a lot of questions regarding sleep um, hygiene and bedtime routines and what's going on and what the issues are um, so we could come up against um, children not settling to sleep early enough um, once they are asleep are they waking up quite a lot in the night are they waking early morning like four o'clock in the morning onwards um, so we take all that information in, into hand and from that information we can devise them a plan which usually is, is the sleep routine. The hour before bed is quite crucial that we advise is um, no screens the hour before bed because obviously the TV screen or mobile screen or any, any kind of screen with that light on can interfere with the natural production of um, the sleepy hormone we produce. Um, so we ask for them to 
turn all screens off the hour before bed use like um calming activities um either reading for the little ones coloring and, and things like that jigsaws anything that we can use our hand and our eye to help us relax hand-eye coordination activities are really good to relax the brain and then we would suggest having a little bit of supper and we often get people saying supper that's an old-fashioned thing but having that little bit of supper introducing the dairy foods which is really good for sleep and um things like bananas are good for sleep um wholemeal toast wheat mix porridge even cheese and crackers we advise as well we do get a lot of parents saying it'll give them nightmares or now it's a bit of a myth um, and it's really good to help relax the brain um so yeah we'd advise a little bit of supper so having that and it also eliminates the delay tactics with some people that won't go to sleep early so um that that does help uh, and then we'd advise a bath or a, a shower um the warm water helps us relax as well and then into bed and that usually lasts about an hour to get that um routine in place which is good sleep hygiene so i was going to ask how easily some people manage to steer clear of the screens before bed i mean it sounds like you're almost distracting them with other things which is good but do you find that people are able to resist the temptation of the screens some are some aren't because they're very addictive aren't they life's very much 24 7 and we can do anything via our mobile phone or anything like that so yes it can be difficult and that might be the first piece of work that we do is getting getting them off them screens first to teach ourselves not to look at the screens but with that in mind i'm interested to hear you use words like routine and habit and consistent um things that we understand are really important with sleep but do you think that different people have the same needs in terms of routine? I mean, is it that it's we need to be consistent at a more societal level or, or are these individualised approaches that you work with? I think we all need routine to a certain extent for it to become a habit. So we do get used to used to the habits of going to bed and, and the run up to bedtime. Um, we do. I do feel that everybody's sleep problem is an individual thing um, and working out the plan can be tailored towards that individual person um, what could work with one person might not work with another person um, so that's where we would explore different avenues of, of which road to go down. Do you think it's possible to help children if um, other members of the household aren't on board yes we all need to be singing from the same hymn sheet and we all need to be doing the same thing also this will give children mixed signals that it can happen with one parent or not with another if you know or a sibling is is not doing the same thing and children soon know how which parent to ask for certain things don't they they <laughs> certainly know that. which is the weakest link that's for sure <laughs> they're not that are they no um, so claire do you feel that you are able to improve most people's sleep i think to a certain extent everybody can improve their sleep to to even if it's just to get an extra hour um of good quality sleep 
Um, I think we're all capable of, of improving it because we all get into those bad habits. I'm, I'm for one, if I have my mobile phone in my bedroom I, and I wake up through the night for whatever reason, I will look at that and say, oh, I've got an email. No, I should not do that. So it's about training yourself not to even have that there to, to, to have a look at. Consistency is the key. You know, once they start to change their sleep habits and their sleep hygiene, um, remember to keep going for a good three weeks and then it will just become the normal for everybody. Um, and it is quite a lot of um, self-willingness um, to do it. So if they want to do it, then it, it will work. Claire, thank you very, very much. I think you've given us all plenty to think about. It was great talking to Claire, someone who shares a passion for the importance of sleeping well and to hear about some of her work. We've talked about the importance of a consistent sleep routine a lot within this podcast already and Claire really reiterated that. It's a shame that the sleep manifesto was somewhat slowed in its tracks due to the timing of Covid. But then again, that pandemic has been pretty indiscriminate in what it's affected. It has, though, created an opportunity for us to think about our routines and almost to start afresh with revised waking times and sleeping times. Nightlife is still off limits in the UK in February 2021, and it may well be so for some time. Perhaps then we should be making the most of the natural current inclination to hibernate at this time of year, being free from those nighttime distractions. Let's harness those opportunities to think about sleep hygiene and to try to sleep well. If any listeners would like to take part in the Sleep Well study, then get in touch in the usual ways. You're very welcome to have a go at trying the sleep hygiene intervention and to see if it affects your own sleep habits. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Sleep Science Pod. I hope you found it helpful. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate and review. You can find me on Twitter at Sleep and Memory. And until the next episode, sleep well.